and 60 again with me clint Grauman, your host and chad baker co-host and today we're missing a very special friend andrew polipchuk are we missing him though not really <laughs> <laughs> no it's always it's always good to have the whole crew together you know and when we started this this show space and 60 it was all about getting the three of us back together with all the pandemic was going on and all that stuff that we were missing throughout but we actually are about to start getting out and hitting the road again. We've got several conferences coming up. In fact, by the time this episode gets out, maybe that will have already started. We've got Via Satellite 2022 coming up in Washington, D.C. I think toward the end of March that's happening. We've got the Space Symposium in Colorado Springs coming up in the first part of April. And then we've got GeoEnt that's happening toward the end of April. Time to hit the road again. Yep, time to get back on the road. And doesn't mean we're not going to be doing Space in 60. Maybe it means we're going to be having much more variety on the show, more stories to tell, and even discover some new people that will be on the show with us. I think even doing it from, from different locations. Yep. Getting on site. Glad to maybe do some of these from the road. Especially glad to get back to the pub after the shows and, and all the personnel. You know what? We should do that. We should do some of our shows from the bar at the next shows that we're doing. I got another place we should do. And this is shameless plug for a brewery. I used to live close by because they make great beer, but Rocket Frog. Rocket Frog. Yeah. Yeah. Actually enjoyed a Wallops Island last night. Delicious. So, so Rocket Frog is the name of the brewery or is it the name of the beer? Name of the brewery. So yeah, it's, it's great stuff up in Northern Virginia. Oh, and what kind of beer is the Wallops Island? It's a brown ale. It's amazing, but they they got everything. I don't know, more toffee, kind of caramel. Really good. I mean, it's won awards. It's it's top notch, along with their other beers. But that's one you're of their kind of a, chips, You're kind so. of a craft beer connoisseur, so I'll trust your judgment on it. I, I tend to think so. You know, there have gotten to be quite a few craft brews out there that are space-themed these days. It is. So there's our next piece. We just kind of go around and, and hop into all these breweries. I'm all up for it. I'm sure we could twist Andrew's arm. I'm not sure we'd get much work done. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I am really glad to get back on the road and start to see everyone again. So the first one we've got coming up that I mentioned earlier, we're headed out to VSAT 2022 in Washington, D.C. You know, I went to Space Symposium in the in the fall, but it was still a little bit iffy on who all was going to show up to that and we're still kind of in that weird period in between where people can travel or they can't travel for work. But I'm looking forward to this next one coming up in, at the end of March. Absolutely. So, yeah, that's a really cool show. I'm looking forward to that one. But we're going to meet more people like our guests that we're having on the show today. I'm really excited for our next guest, as I always am. Our next guest is a planetary scientist. Something very unique, a space comedian. Uh, never met one of those before. She's an author. She's a teacher. She's a mom. She's a co-founder of STEM Sisters. And she's an overall space enthusiast that I can't wait to meet today. We have our very special guest, Dr. Sheila Kanani. 
Dr. Kanani. It's a pleasure to have you today. Oh, thanks for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure. So my name is Dr. Sheila Kanani. I'm the Education Outreach and Diversity Officer at the Royal Astronomical Society, and I'm a children's author as well. Wow. You know, we've had some people that have written books on the subject before on the show, but we've never had anyone that was an author of, of children's books. So I can't wait till till we get into that. But I also have noticed that you have quite the diverse background in space and actually started adventuring towards space really, really young with space school and space camp. And I would just love to hear all about that, how you got where you are today. Yeah, I think I've been really lucky. I think the job I do now, I didn't really know about or maybe didn't exist when I was a child. And I come from quite a sciencey family. So my family are pharmacists and medical doctors. So science was always kind of one of the things that we did together. But when I was younger, well, first of all, I wanted to be a vet. I loved animals and, you know, caring for animals and things. But then when I was 13, I saw the Apollo 13 film with Tom Hanks in based on the real mission. And I came out of the cinema just thinking, I want to be an astronaut. I want to go into space. Nothing like that had crossed my mind before then, to be honest. Um, But something happened in that cinema that just changed my whole world, really. And it was pre-Google. So I went to the local library to read about astronauts and find out different career paths into into the space industry. And one caught my eye, and that was British-American astronaut Michael Fole, who has a PhD in astrophysics. So when I was 13, I decided that that's what I was going to do to become an astronaut. I wanted to get a PhD. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't really know what astrophysics was at that that time either, but that was where I set my sights. So I studied science and, well, all the sciences and maths and languages and things in school. And then did a undergraduate master's in physics with astrophysics and then a PhD in planetary science. So I was part of the Cassini spacecraft team or one one of hundreds of people across the globe who was part of the Cassini spacecraft team using data from the Cassini spacecraft to learn more about Saturn. So it was it was a really interesting, a really interesting PhD. But during that time, I realized that as much as I love the science, I really love talking about it and exciting other people about space and teaching younger people about all the amazing things that are out there. So I went and retrained as a teacher, spent a few years in a secondary school in the UK teaching all sciences, including physics, which was eye-opening. It was fun, but it was really challenging. And then the job at the Royal Astronomical Society came up. And I think having that dual background of research and teaching meant that I was quite well placed to do education outreach and diversity, which is what I do today. Wow. I love hearing about what was the catalyst to getting people into the space industry. And Apollo 13 was one of those movies that was very polarizing in that it either completely turns you off like, nope, not me, never going to space, or sign me up. I want to be there. And for me, it wasn't the catalyst for me. There was these other things that pushed me into the space industry. But Apollo 13 was definitely one of those sign me up moments for me. I was about to have that same comment. And the thing I like about Apollo 13 too, and with your comments that that's what drew you in, is how can you help solve those problems and how can you help advance those? So, but yeah, Clint, I was on the same page of, it's almost the tipping point of being a bit scary into space. But it kind of shows that, you know, it is scary, but it's amazing to be part of something like that. And, um, you know, I'd still love to be an astronaut, but 
because of wanting to do those kinds of things. Like you mentioned, I managed to go to, there was a space school in the UK in Leicester, Leicester University that I went to when I was in my teens. And that was a week of lectures by, you know, university professors. We did scuba diving, we built and launched small rockets. And then through that, I went to space camp in Alabama, which was just out of, literally out of this world. It was such a different experience. You know, there was mock-ups of the space shuttle and there was proper scuba diving, like mock-ups of of rockets at the bottom of these massive um, swimming pools. And it was like astronaut training. It was incredible. It was such a a cool experience for a teenager to, to be able to do that. You realize with that story, you've just completely derailed the entire podcast because we're going to have to stop on that one with Space Camp. I can't imagine a world where you haven't seen the movie Space Camp. Yeah, well, it's one of my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was, I was praying, you know, that that would happen. The week first launch, but it was canceled that week because of the weather, which was unfortunate. I still haven't seen a launch. And then while I was at university, I went to a, a space. It wasn't a camp as such, but it was some kind of a, a week-long workshop in Russia. And we got to tour Star City and we met cosmonauts and we went to really strange museums. I remember going to a very strange museum in St. Petersburg, which was basically jars of animals in like formaldehyde. Not related to space at all, but it <laughs> <laughs> sticks out in my brain quite a lot. And I've got to travel a lot through, you know, through research and through teaching and that. And that's been one of the really formulaic uh, experiences of of my career really being able to travel and meet people all across the globe all all as enthusiastic about space as I am. Well tell us what you're doing now at the uh, Royal Astronomical Society. So the Royal Astronomical Society is a learned society it's a membership organization for astronomers and geophysicists UK predominantly but it is an international organization Um, It was founded in 1820, so it's 202 years old. And it was, you know, one of those old men's clubs way back when women weren't supposed to be doing science, let alone astronomy. Uh, So started, was started by about 12 men, I think. The first president was William Herschel, who discovered the planet um, Uranus. And then 200 years later, we are significantly different, I hope. We have over 4,000 members, 20% of which are women, which is not brilliant, but is not a bad sort of subset of the science science community in the UK anyway. And at the RAS, I do education, outreach and diversity. So education tends to be like formal education. So going into schools, teaching all ages, running workshops and linking into curriculum topics but using space as the hook. I also teach GCSE astronomy which is a sort of additional qualification for roughly age 16 students before they go on to specialise and choose what they want to do at university. Then the outreach tends to be more public facing with families and adults. It could be things like taking telescopes to music festivals or keynote speeches or organising conferences. So quite a big Um, remit within that and then the diversity is probably the most interesting but the most challenging section of my job where we're trying to encourage people from more diverse backgrounds to be part of the space industry whether that's women or people from ethnic minorities or geographically remote areas you know and the last few years have been really interesting because of the pandemic so we took everything that we do online 
which has meant that we could reach a lot more people. But then there's been that sort of digital divide of the people that just don't have the access to the internet that we didn't really know how to reach when, you know, when you're not allowed to go into schools or or meet people in small places. So it's been a really interesting few years. What do you think that's going to develop like now that we've had the pandemic, we've created this digital life that that didn't exist in the same way before. How do you think that's going to change the way you approach this in the future once the world is back open? Yeah, I hope things don't go back to how they were before. You know, I hope we don't just go back to everything being face to face and, you know, even meetings that don't need to be face to face being face to face and stuff like that. My office is in London and I live in the northwest of England. So when I was required to be in London, it would be a kind of three to four hour train journey into central London. And sometimes, you you know, you'd go in and it, whatever you go in for could have been resolved in an email or a, or a Zoom meeting. And you just think, well, what's the point? And we're very aware now about our carbon emissions and accessibility as well. We have groups of people in our membership and also astronomers and that who maybe can't travel because of disabilities or maybe whatever reason it is. And by digitizing some of our conferences and our talks and things and making them available on on the internet meant that people didn't need to travel, which was really nice. And I think I found it much easier because I've got two young children. So it's a lot more accessible for like if things like this, um, recording podcasts across the pond or going to more meetings, but being able to switch off at four o'clock and go and pick my son up from school and, and not having to travel and stuff. So hopefully people will get the best of both things. So hybrid meetings where possible, using the technology to our advantage, but not forgetting the people that don't have the access to that technology. And I do appreciate that going into schools and things can be more powerful than a a face on a screen. So I just hope that we use it properly or we use both things properly going forwards. It is kind of nice just having that that balance as well. So then the people you may be working with are closer to other schools. So you may be able to get more FaceTime with other areas that may have been more challenging to travel to. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's sort of the, the highlands and islands of Scotland, for example, could take a day for me to travel. And I live in the north of England, whereas you could just turn on a computer and, and chat to people there. And, you know, so there are definite positives. Building awareness of what's happening in space and bringing people into the space industry is serious business. However, I do understand there's a funny side to space as well. I hear you're a space comedian. Yeah, it sounds funny when you put it like that, but I have I have dabbled a little bit in um, stand-up comedy through my space career <laughs> for my sins. It started when I was, I think I was doing my PhD and someone had the idea that if we had an evening in a pub where we combined comedians and research scientists talking about their work, it would be quite an an interesting and fun environment for people to come and listen. And they, you know, it's science science by stealth. So they, they go to the pub, they listen to the comedians, they have a five minute presentation from a scientist. So the first time I did it, I wasn't supposed to be funny. The comedian was there to be the host of the funny one. And then it it somehow evolved into the scientists expecting to be funny as well. So we had a little bit of training. And then when I was teaching, I found that actually if you 
if you're talking to sort of 14, 15 year old boys about things, having a sense of humor is really helpful. You know, it keeps them interested. It makes them realize that you're human, even though you're a teacher. And it's been quite a useful tool. Quite a lot of my friends don't think I'm funny, <laughs> but, uh, you know, then they see me on stage or, or whatever, or, you know, and then, think, oh yeah, okay. You, you can be funny at the right place in the right time. And if, if someone's had a beer, it obviously helps. <laughs> so. You know, at the, at the pub after a space conference, Chad always thinks he's funny. It is, you know, people tend to leave or gravitate. I don't know which way, but it's a, <laughs> that is a genius idea though. I love that. Having fun with space, I think is, is important. And, you know, in our teams that we have, it's, we have a rule that if it's not fun, we don't do it. And space has always been the center of both work and, and fun for us as well. But that being said, is this one of those times you're ready to be funny? Can you tell us a space joke? Nothing like put on the spot. <laughs> Well, so my favorite planet, Saturn, is also known to be God's favorite planet. How can we tell that God's favorite planet is Saturn? I don't know. How can we tell? He liked it so much, he put a ring on it. Oh, that's good. <laughs> I like it. I'm going to have to tell that one to my daughter. She loves space jokes. That's great. Put a ring on it. Oh, good transition there from uh, Saturn. I'd love to talk more about your Cassini program that you mentioned. And then also figure out, I have a bit of inside knowledge on this, just on some research that we did, but why your favorite planet is Saturn outside of Cassini, not just the rings, but something else that that came up. What is that? Yeah. So I accidentally kind of fell into a PhD using Cassini data. When I was applying for PhDs, I applied to a, a whole plethora of different ones, the one that I got was with the Mullard Space Science Laboratory, which is part of University College London in, in the UK. And originally it was it was a planetary science PhD, but it was supposed to be using some other data on some other planet, but I can't remember which one. But I think there had been problems with either the launch or the landing of that spacecraft. And so I ended up using Cassini data. More than looking at the planet, I was looking at the magnetic field and the magnetosphere, so the magnetic environment around the planet and how that interacts with the rings and the moons. And now, obviously, with a PhD, the, the stuff that you're finding out is original, but it's so like the tiniest jigsaw puzzle piece of such a big jigsaw that the details of what I found out were not really that interesting. But being part of that community was incredible. The pictures that were coming back and the information that we were learning about the planet itself, but also the moons is just incredible. And the moons of Saturn are the things that really capture my imagination more so than the rings. Before Cassini, I think we thought Saturn had about 20 or so moons, but now it's got over 50. They vary in size from two kilometers across to bigger than the planet Mercury. There's Titan, which is like a proto-Earth and it has liquid methane lakes on. There's Enceladus, which is spewing water ice into the Saturn system. There's Mimas, which looks like the Death Star. There's Hyperion, which is made out of like a coral-like substance. They're just incredible and they're all part of Saturn and kind of a mystery still as to how there's so many moons and they're so different, but they're all going around one planet and, you know, were they captured, were they created? And I just love stuff like that. And, you know, all the kind of mysteries about that planet that some of which were solved by, by Cassini and, and then the whole story about Cassini itself and how long it was up there and the, the Huygens lander 
And the way that Cassini was deorbited into Saturn's atmosphere at the end of the mission. And it's just, I love the stories. I love all the stories, the people, the the stories about the moons and everything. All of, all of that is what really gets me excited about that planet, I think. You know, Sheila, when we started this podcast, we really didn't expect anyone but our moms to be listening. But we've actually got like 2,000 listeners, I think, now. And it's gotten to such a diverse audience. It's not just those of us that work in the space industry, but we've got lots of others from outside as well. And I don't think all of them know about Cassini and understand that mission. And would you mind taking a little bit of time and just helping everyone understand what went on with uh, Cassini? Yeah, sure. So. The idea was conceived in the late 1980s. It was going to be a flagship mission to the planet Saturn. It was commissioned by NASA, European Space Agency, the Italian Space Agency in the 19, early 1990s. Took a few, fair few years to be built. And the spacecraft itself is about the size of a double-decker bus. It had 12 instruments on it, taking vi- visual images, measuring dust, looking at the magnetic field of, around the planet, looking at the electrons, um, radio signals, etc. And then the European part of the mission was a probe called the Huygens probe, which looked like a giant dinner plate basically attached to the side of Cassini. So Cassini flew in the 1990, so 1997, I think it launched. And it because it was flying so far away, because it was going to orbit Saturn, it's so far away from, from the Earth and the Sun that it couldn't be solar powered. So it was actually powered by some nuclear power batteries, which meant that there was all sorts of protests about the launch and you know what happened if it exploded on the launch pad and stuff. So it was quite political as well, but it did launch successfully. It took seven years to get to Saturn. So it got there in the early 2000s. And then it was only supposed to last a few years, but it was such a successful spacecraft that it was um, recommissioned until 2017. So I think it ended up staying up in in orbit around Saturn and its moons for almost that almost 14 years, which sounds a long time to us. But one Saturn year is 29 Earth years, so it was about half of a Saturn year. But still, it was impressive because. It was the longest running planetary mission and it it was there long enough to see different seasons on Saturn. So we were able to see seasonal changes on the planet and look at the rings in ways that we'd never looked at the rings before and discover all these moons and all that kind of stuff. And then as it came to the end of its life, there was lots of conversation about what should happen to it. We didn't want to crash it onto any of the moons because of this sort of idea of planetary protection and that if some of the moons looked like they might have markers for life on and then we go and crash something on it, that's not a good way of disposing of a human-made spacecraft. So it was eventually decided that Cassini, for its final final send-off, would fly through the rings, um, it, well, through the bit between the rings and the planet which nothing had ever been there before, and then burn up in the atmosphere of Saturn. And um, because of the technology, we were able to track it all the way through until it burnt up. And it basically looked like, you know, on those medical dramas where someone dies and you see like a heartbeat and then all of a sudden a flat line. That's exactly what we watched happening at, at Cassini. And because people had been working on that mission some of them since the beginning, so since the late late 1980s, right up until 2017, it was like a child for them. It was a really emotional time. Like people went to JPL in, in America and that to 
to be together to watch the end of of Cassini and they you know tears and and hugging and kissing and people were really emotional about it so the spacecraft itself became kind of like personified as someone's baby and it was the data that we still got I think there's enough data that we could still analyze it for like another 50 years so when you hear about new findings at Saturn or about Saturn's moons it's all still Cassini data that just hasn't been hasn't been analysed yet and is still there for, for the next generation to keep analysing. So, yeah, really inspirational mission, I think, really cool. That much data. I mean, especially with people considering it their baby, they must be be very proud of their child. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, it, it way surpassed any expectations. You know, switching subjects just a little bit, you seem to have quite the extensive knowledge of space and our solar system, and you've always worked to convey that knowledge to the next generation. I also understand that you're an author. Yeah, (laughs) another fluke, kind of like the space comedy. It just kind of (laughs) happened. So I mentioned that as part of my role at the Royal Astronomical Society, I do public engagement and outreach. And I was giving a public lecture one day in in 2016 and I was using dry ice to make a comet or make an analogy of a comet on on stage quite a fun experiment and it looks kind of cool even though it's quite simple and then I came off the stage and this this lady came up to me and she said oh my name's Diane Banks I'm a publishing agent have you ever thought a literary agent sorry have you ever thought about writing books and I said oh when I was six you know I loved writing books so yeah who doesn't when they're children and sort of dream of writing books for, forever. I've always liked, loved stories, as you could probably tell. So eventually we sat down together and I think the idea initially was for me to write adult nonfiction, but because I work so much with young people, that's kind of where my, my expertise lies. Ended up writing children's nonfiction. So I've got five books out so far. I've got a couple more in the pipeline and then obviously hopefully there'll be more more to come but I'm part-time at the at the RAS and write in the write part-time as well so it's a really nice balance because it means I can really enjoy what I do and I don't have to worry about number of book sales I just have to enjoy what I do and push the books because I'm proud of them rather than pushing them to pay for my food and electricity bills kind of thing so it's really nice. What are some of the books that you've written? So I've got two space books. One is called How to Be an Astronaut and Other Space Jobs. And it's a careers book for children, basically. It tells you how to become an astronaut, but it also highlights the plethora of other jobs in the space industry. So basically tells you that whatever you like doing, you can do that, but as part of the space industry. And it's a really diverse book. It's illustrated by an Argentinian woman called Sol Dinero. And she was really mindful about making sure that the scientists weren't all just men and that there were different colours of people. And we've got people in wheelchairs and things like that in the illustrations. And some of the jobs, we talk about engineers and scientists and astrobiologists and space lawyers and space chefs and, you know, all kinds of things just to kind of really say it is a diverse group of people that can be part of the space industry. That's my favourite one, I must admit. Then I have another space one called Space on Earth, which is all about space spin-off technology that has been created for space, but now actually has a much more powerful job on Earth. So 
for example, some technology using, I think it was infrared, which was looking for looking for stars, looking for hot stars in the darkness of space and has been used on Earth to look for cancer cells, breast cancer cells, or the usual kind of, did you know nappies were first created for the space industry and those shiny silver blankets and baby food. I didn't know baby food was, was created for the space industry, but it was originally. And then the other three that are out at the moment are all biographies of women in history. I was asked to write those, so I didn't choose. But the, the three women I've, I was asked to write about are, uh, were Amelia Earhart, the woman who flew across the Atlantic, Rosa Parks of the bus boycotts, and then Michelle Obama. So three pretty influential women there to have written about. Um, but again, all for children. So completely accessible, quite short chapter books. Well, the good thing is they're probably on my and Chad's reading level. <laughs> We'd be happy to, to read them. But I would actually like to make you an offer. If I could get some autographed versions of those books for Chad and my kids, I would in exchange take you to a launch here in Florida. We have a launch almost on a weekly basis now. I think that would be a good exchange, don't you, Chad? Oh, absolutely. Especially I have two daughters, so they would absolutely love it. <laughs> right. So I'll buy the books and you buy my flights. Ooh, ooh <laughs> now we're talking real dollars. <laughs> no, that would that would be lovely to have you as a guest to a launch here. We I saw that we're up to with SpaceX a launch per week this year. Like it's it's amazing. And it's always a pleasure to take someone to their first launch. We've had some really crazy American launch experiences that I don't know, maybe you would find fun. I had a had some guests out once from Germany and from Canada, and we took my my big American size pickup out to the beach. And did a tailgate party where we had everyone up in the back of the the pickup for a launch at two in the morning off of the beach at Cape Canaveral. And yeah, it would be great. If you ever want to come out for a launch, we'd love to to entertain. Take advantage of the invite. I'm still waiting for mine to come. (laughs) (laughs) But speaking of illustrations with your book, as we talk about illustrations, I hear you have an illustration, a really nice tattoo of... (laughs) Yeah, I do. I was wondering where you were going then. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, I'm I'm terrible at transitions, but I eventually get there. Uh, I don't. Well, obviously, it won't come up on a podcast, but uh, oh, oh nice. We go. Yes, it's really beautiful. It's quite uh, so. It's the solar system for those of you that don't get to see get to see a picture. Although I could send you a picture, I suppose, done by a friend who's a, an illustrator and a tattooist. But it's quite funny because when I do go into schools I once had a little girl come up to me and go you've got the soda system on your arm and then she said but that's not fair it means you can cheat in exams now when you get asked <laughs> what the planets is and I was like oh, yeah I could do if I didn't know that and I wouldn't be very good at my job <laughs> when I when I heard about the or read about this tattoo you have of the solar system on on your arm one of the things I've been dying to ask once we finally got in to this interview is Pluto. Is Pluto there or is it not? It is on my arm, yeah. And this was post the change of classification of Pluto. I grew up being taught that there were nine planets and it's still there. It's just being labelled by us as something else, isn't it? So that's kind of like someone coming up to me and saying, oh, because I'm less than five foot. 
it's kind of like someone coming up to me and saying, you're a dwarf person, you're not a real person kind of thing. And so, you know, I'm still a real person, even though I'm small. So Pluto's still a planet, even though it's small. <laughs> yeah, I was wondering, because if we're talking about the moons, we're talking about the planets, what gets included? What's the qualification to make it onto your amazing tattoo? <laughs> well, on here, there is, I think, I mean, and it's it's not to scale. Earth has got its moon. Mars has got two moons, but then there are no other moons. But that's an interesting question. If if you were to draw this to scale, what yeah. would it look like? I'm not sure. I'd have to have really spaghetti arms, I think. <laughs> I was about to say, you got the second arm there for the moons. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I do this activity with um, children at school where we scale down the size of the solar system onto toilet paper and we unravel the toilet paper and each sheet is however many millions of kilometres. And, you know, you basically show them that the, the first four inner rocky planets are quite close to the sun and then there's massive distances out to um, out to Pluto. And I think on on that scale... If the sun's at like zero, Pluto's at like a hundred sheets of toilet paper. So it would be like way out into the playground. And that always captures their imagination quite well as well. But people don't realize the scale of the solar system, how big it is and how small we are in relation to Jupiter and in relation to the sun and that. And then we think that, you know, human beings physically have only actually been as far as the moon, which really isn't that far at all. But then we've built things that have been way past Pluto. So it's quite humbling, really, to think about our impact on, on things in space. You know, you've accomplished just a ton in the space industry, and it, and it sounds like it's taking you many paths that maybe were, were somewhat un, unexpected. What's next? Like, what do you want to do next in the space industry? Well, I did apply to, so the European Space Agency only do calls for astronauts every so often. They're not as regular as NASA. And they had one in 20, 2008, but I wasn't old enough to apply, although I did apply anyway and faked my age, but didn't get through. And then I applied into in 2021. They had 23,000 applications. They took 1,362 people to the next round and I got to the next round. So I, I went to, in the middle of the pandemic, I went to Hamburg in, in Germany and was in a room full of other applicants. And we did all this computer testing, personality tests and maths and physics and spatial awareness and memory and all of these weird computer-based tests. And then they only took 330 people to the round after that, and I was not one of them. So ideally, my next plan would be to train, to get to train as an astronaut, be be one of those educator astronauts like uh, Krista McAuliffe should have been if the Challenger disaster hadn't happened, you know, be a, a teacher in space. That's what I'd absolutely love to do. But it's going to be quite difficult to do it through a, a space agency. I think I'll have to... Um, go and tap on Elon Musk's shoulder or something like that as much as I don't necessarily agree with commercial spaceflight. <laughs> so that would be my ultimate goal. But, uh, you know, in the meantime, I'd like to write more books. I do really enjoy my my kind of day-to-day job, which is varied anyway, and, you know, inspiring more people into the space industry and stuff. And I think it's quite important in the UK because people don't realise how much involvement the, the UK have in in space technology and, and space missions. 
we have a space agency, UK space agency, people have never even heard of either. So there's a lot of work to be done in educating even the people in the UK about UK space programs, let alone other people. So I, I will keep doing that if I don't get to go to space. And then maybe my retirement plan can be to pay Richard Branson to take me into space or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you you joked about your height, but it's ideally suited for going to space. Like a guy my size, I mean, it's kind of like being crumpled up in a tin can, but as someone at five feet, it's like ideal for being an astronaut. In theory, yeah. But so with the European Space Agency, they had a height limit, the lower and upper limit. And I think their lower limit was 150 centimeters. And I'm actually something like 147. So I think Just if I had... You can fake it, just like your age. Yeah. If I'd got any further in those astronaut applications, I think I would have been kicked out for being three centimeters too short anyway. <laughs> so when you just make sure you lay down, like yeah. you're in the top yeah. 6% of applicants. That's, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, I know. Oh, it kind of, and there were not that, I think there was 500 from the UK and only 70 of us. No, I can't remember the stats for the UK, but they were obviously even less. So I got to, I, I got, further than I expected to. But I think by go getting that first step then made me want it even more, obviously. So I'm a bit like, oh, if they just met me, it was those damn computer tests. <laughs> yeah, but in science, it's all about the data, right? Yeah, sadly. <laughs> you know, Chad and I, we probably live in a bubble, but you're the first person from the space industry, I guess within my circles that I've ever met, that didn't have a completely positive opinion about commercial space flight. I'd love to drill down on that one. <laughs> Maybe it's my kind of diversity officer hat. At the moment, anyway, commercial space flight is very much for the rich and the people that have the money. And I don't necessarily agree with like Starlink, which is polluting the skies for people that are doing astronomy for scientific purposes. And then, you you know, you're turning your telescopes to the sky and the, there's going to be, what, 12,000 Starlink satellites orbiting. You got a license for 40-something thousand, I think. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, imagine trying to do science and then having all those satellites obscuring your vision, which is quite frustrating. And, like, who owns space and how has he got... Why is he allowed to do that and nobody else's? And again, it comes down to money, I think, which is a shame, really. I understand that to go forward, and I think SpaceX is impressive. And, you know, to go forward in, in anything, you do need the money and the people behind it to push it and stuff. So I, I appreciate that we probably do need commercial space flight, but it's just, maybe I'm just sore that I don't have enough money to buy a seat on Virgin Galactic or whatever, but I know we need it, but it's just, I think it just could be done better or more in, or in a more inclusive way and, and that kind of thing. Well, Richard, if you're listening, Richard Branson, <laughs> <Yeah>. we have <laughs> an amazing person on the show today, Dr. Sheila Kanani, that would be ideal for going to space, bringing back that knowledge and teaching the kids here on earth how to be an expert, how to be someone who makes a difference in the space industry. So if you're listening, and I know you are, I think there's an offer to be made here. I agree. <laughs> so we're actually running up against the end of the time that you've allotted for us on this show, Dr. Kanani, but I would love to know what you think is the most exciting thing happening in the space industry today as kind of your, your parting message. 
Well, that's a good question. I mean, I like the solar system very much and I appreciate the the other areas of, of space, but I do think the solar system is something that is very tangible, it's very real and we can really relate to. And kind of going back to the Cassini mission, one of the big findings was this tiny moon Enceladus, which is about the size of England, so very small, covered in an ice crust and during the Cassini mission, we realised that there are cracks in the ice at the South Pole and there's these plumes of water vapour spewing out of the, the South Pole of Enceladus. So Cassini flew through it and tasted the air and realised that there are the building blocks for life in this water vapour, in this in this geyser of material. So there's, there is water, it's salty water, there's sulphur, nitrogen, ammonia, carbon, etc., and mathematical models of this moon have told us that underneath the ice there is a subsurface ocean and it's a salty water ocean. So where else do we have salty water oceans but on Earth? And I think that the next big mission should be to somewhere like Enceladus to drill through the ice surface and really test that water to see if there is the, the possibility of microbial life of extremophiles living on this, this tiny moon of Saturn. Because then that starts to open up all sorts of other questions about are we alone in, in the universe? And if there are microbes living on, on a moon of Saturn, what does that mean for other solar systems that are out there that we've already found? And if there isn't anything and if we are alone, that's an equally interesting question. And I do think that's the sort of thing that I'd like to see answered in my lifetime, not by me, but by the next generation. Lots of big questions out there. As we let you go from the show today, I think it'd be great if you let the listeners know how they can find the books that you've written, how they can see the work that you've done uh, with the RAS, anything you'd like to, to leave us with today on how to find all of that? Yeah, sure. So I do have a Wikipedia page that someone else has written about me and my books are on Amazon. So if you just Google Sheila Kanani on Twitter, I'm at Saturn Sheila and the Royal Astronomical Society is um, ras.ac.uk. So there's various ways of, of finding the information there. And I do know the books do exist in print in, in the US as well. So I'm sure you could find them in the bookshops and I'll come over and sign them when I next have the opportunity. Perfect. Well, we'll be happy to post a link as well to the, to the books um, at the end of the show. So thank you so much for joining us today. I know Chad and I both enjoyed the time with you today and we look forward to the next opportunity to speak with you again. Can't wait to see you at a lunch. Yeah, me neither. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much. Take care. Wow, what a great show today. That was amazing. She's just a, a ton of fun to talk to. Yeah, Dr. Kanani, she's quite diverse in her interest in the space industry. She's got authorship. She's written books. She's entered the race to become an astronaut. She got really close too. Making me feel like I really need to, to up my own game a little bit. It's <laughs> Yeah, so I thought that tattoo is really cool. I know that everyone on the show couldn't see it that's just listening, but like that was a really cool tattoo down the length of her forearm. It is. And I mean, especially with that meaning so much with everything she does in her life and kind of the focus, it's great. But I thought that was pretty insightful from one of the kids that she could now cheat on exams. <laughs> it's with her kids doing homework. She just reaches her arm out. <laughs> yep. Yeah. But, you know, I think with all that she's accomplished in the industry and 
helping to bring that knowledge of space to kids. That's where it all starts. Yeah, it's great. Especially because, I mean, we both have kids and seeing the excitement that they have for the industry and having people to look up to, like the doctor we had today and some other guests we've had. It's great. It's fun to watch. And having these books that she wrote that we can share with them about, you know, space on earth and, and other space jobs, not just astronauts, but how you can be involved. Right. Yeah, it's too bad Andrew wasn't here today. I think he really would have enjoyed um, speaking with Dr. Kanani. Absolutely. We missed him today. Andrew, we missed you a little bit. Nah, not really. (laughs) No, it it would have been great to have Andrew on the show today. But, you know, I think with everything that we've seen Dr. Kanani accomplish, I think she's got a lot of great things to come. And as I mentioned to her on the show, we'll be posting a link where you can get to her books and her research and all of the things that she's accomplished, as well as some of the work that she's still doing. Yeah, I think there's going to be a lot more to come from Dr. Kanani and, and looking forward to see it all coming hot and fast. (laughs) That was great. And thank you for listening to Space and 60. We'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Space and 60. Stay tuned as we explore new journeys into space with our upcoming guests and talk about the evolution of the industry. Be sure to subscribe to the show so you don't miss any new episodes. And we would love your input and feedback. So send us your comments and questions, and we'll try to feature them in a future podcast. We'll catch you on the next episode of Space in 60, where new space speaks.